Hello and good morning to everyone. May I add my own words of welcome to you. Uh, it's good to have you uh, coming to our service this morning. I'm Andrew, uh, one of the, the elders. And uh, over Christmas and during Advent, as we came up to Christmas, we looked um, in a particular series of sermons at a, a number of appropriate texts. And we've now returned to Mark's Gospel, to studies in Mark's Gospel, and particularly the last chapters of Mark's Gospel. And last week we began by looking at chapter 11. Uh, Matt very helpfully took us through that. And today we are coming to chapter 12, the beginning of chapter 12, and the story, the parable of Jesus that we call the parable of the tenants. Now, before I, I look at that, I want to say that I have always found one of the very striking features of the gospel, uh, the gospels, to um, see how popular Jesus was with the ordinary people. The common people, we're told repeatedly, the common people heard him gladly. Uh, what he said, uh, what he did, was something that they were um, enormously impressed by, and they were they were drawn to him and to this remarkable authority uh, that he reflected in, in all that he was and, and all that he did. We know of the crowds that followed Jesus, the numbers of people who gathered and went great distances to, to come and hear him and, and see him and to be with him, the, the multitudes that followed him, often making such huge demands upon him. And I believe that that's still the case today with all the um, confusion, with all the doubts, with all the uncertainties, uh, with all the competing voices in our culture and in our world, Jesus stands out as one who remains enormously attractive, powerfully and compellingly attractive for us. And I want to say that as we begin a, a new year and we put behind us 2020, which was a horrible year for so many people with so much suffering and so much misery. And as we look to this new year, 2021, full of hope and promise and expectation, let's for ourselves re-examine our own encounter with Jesus, our own relationship with him in our prayers, as we read his word, as we engage in, or draw, uh, are drawn into the life and the worship and the fellowship and the witness of the church. Let's see for ourselves again how powerfully attractive Jesus is to us and how we respond by confessing him to be our saviour, our Lord and our friend. Well, there's another feature also in the Gospels that I find quite striking, and that is how quickly there was opposition to Jesus. The common people heard him gladly, but the religious leaders, the religious establishment, very quickly became opposed to him. And it wasn't just opposition, it was real hostility. They set out to try and test him. They set out to try and trap him, to pull him down. And of course, this growing hostility through the Gospels uh, leads uh, to his crucifixion. He is falsely accused and arrested. He uh, has to go through a mockery of a trial and then suffers uh, all the pain and the humiliation and the cruel injustice of crucifixion, the product of the hostility of the uh, religious uh, leadership. 
And we may ask, why was that? Why was that? I think partly the religious leaders were very jealous of Jesus. He was a very popular figure. He had a, a, a popularity. He had an acceptance. Uh, he had a following that they manifestly did not have. And I think there was a real measure of, of jealousy. But perhaps more important, um, Jesus exposed the hypocrisy and the corruption of the religious leadership, the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests and the teachers and the students of the law. Um, he exposed the way in which they had betrayed and rejected the trust that God had placed upon them to lead his people. And we see that very clearly in this parable, the parable of the tenants. It's a very clear example of the way that Jesus uh, was critical of the religious leadership. And I want to turn and have a look at that uh, parable now. The context for Jesus telling this parable, this story, is uh, chapter 11 uh, that we looked at last, that we looked at last week. Jesus enters Jerusalem in triumph with all the signs that he is indeed God's uh, appointed Messiah, God's Christ, God's anointed servant. And we see the account of him uh, entering Jerusalem. He goes on to clear the temple of the corrupt traders. There is the very um, interesting uh, matter of the fig tree that he curses for its fruitlessness. And then the chapter ends with Jesus being questioned and challenged by the religious authorities um, about his own authority. Where does he get his authority to do what he does and to say what he says? And now we come on to the parable itself, the parable of the tenants. Now, the parable was very much Jesus' teaching method. And many of the parables aren't always just so clear as to what Jesus is talking about. Um, there are parables that he himself goes on to explain the message and the meaning. But with this parable, we have a, a parable that's extremely clear and quite unambiguous as to who the different people are in the story and what uh, the message is. So let's look again at the opening of the story, the first five verses of chapter 12. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, he put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. Now the man in the story, the landowner, is clearly God himself. And the vineyard, the vineyard in the story, is clearly Israel, God's own people. And the picture of the vineyard 
to represent God's people is quite a, a common one. There's a very good parable, actually, in the Old Testament, in the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 5, a very uh, powerful parable where uh, God uh, shows his, his, his people to be like a vineyard, but a vineyard that is fruitless. There is no harvest. It is corrupt and he destroys it. And when Jesus told this parable, um, he clearly draws on uh, this parable in, in, in Isaiah 5. And those who heard him would know that that's the case. So the owner, the landowner is God. The vineyard is God's people. It's, it's Israel. And the tenants of the vineyard are clearly the religious leaders to whom God has entrusted the management of his affairs. And the servants who are sent to the vineyard over a period of time to collect its fruit are clearly the prophets. And this is really a, a true history of Israel, uh, God's chosen people, the people that God uh, loved, the people to whom God um, gave such an abundance of good things out of the fullness of his goodness and mercy. He gave them the law. He gave them the sacrifices. He gave them the prophets. He redeemed them at the time of the Exodus from slavery in Egypt. <coughs> he settled them in the promised land. He returned them to the promised land after the exile. All these things God had done to his people and he looked to them to be a blessing, a blessing to all the earth. But they rejected him. They were unfaithful. They were corrupt. They went after other gods. He saw little or indeed no fruit in his vineyard. And God cares for his vineyard. He loves his vineyard. We see the lengths that he goes to provide for it with all the resources, all that's necessary for it to make it absolutely good and fruitful. But God is rejected. God is, 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 is abandoned. They, they, they seek other gods with a, a kind of defiance. There's a the defiance in this story that reflects something of the, the history of Israel. Let's read on <clears throat> and we come now to verse 6. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Well, the son, of course, is Jesus. That's quite clear. And Jesus here gives us another um, uh, prophecy of his death. He foretells his coming death and his rejection and the hostility of his people against him. And of course, it does end uh, on the cross. And as I was preparing this, I was reminded of those quite wonderful words in Isaiah chapter 53 that marvellous passage of, of prophecy of the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, <coughs> which my old uh, teaching professor in Edinburgh, uh, Professor George Anderson, uh, says um, is a miracle of prophecy. And this verse just tunes in so much with the parable that we're looking at today. Isaiah 53 in verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. 
like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. And so Jesus comes to the climax of his story in verse 9. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? This is very much the, the centre point of the story. What will the owner do about this? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. What will the owner do about his vineyard? And I want us to take a pause there and we're going to see a very short uh, video clip um, of the telling of this parable by Jesus himself in the Jesus film. Some of you will know a lot about the Jesus film, I'm sure, and have seen it probably several times, but it was produced at the end of the 1970s, so it's 40 years old, it's quite dated, it's quite stilted in its way, but it's a very proper, biblical, orthodox telling of the story of Jesus. And I want us now to look at this scene when he tells the parable of the tenants. There was once a man who planted a vineyard, rented it out to tenants, and then left home for a long time. When the time came to gather the grapes, he sent a slave to the tenants to receive from them his share of the harvest. But the tenants beat the slave and sent him back without a thing. So he sent another slave. But the tenants beat him too, treated him shamefully and sent him back without a thing. Then he sent a third slave. But the tenants wounded him too and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said to himself, what shall I do? I will send my own dear son. Surely they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him coming, they said to one another, This is the owner's son. Let's kill him and his property will be ours. What happened? Tell us more. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to those tenants? He will come and kill those men and give the vineyard over to other tenants. What then does this scripture mean? The stone which the builders rejected as worthless turned out to be the most important of all. Everyone who falls on that stone will be cut to pieces. And if that stone falls on someone, it will crush him to dust. I meant to say that the claim was made for the Jesus film whether it's still true or not, I don't know, but the claim was certainly made that it was seen by more people than any other film in history. Certainly translated into a great number of different languages, and we used it a lot in the early years of our ministry in Edinburgh for evangelism and for outreach. Well, Jesus ends the parable um, by making two comments. First of all, he answers the question, what should the owner do by saying that he should give the vineyard and will give the vineyard to others. 
And the second comment is when Jesus uh, refers to himself clearly as the stone that the builders rejected, implying his rejection and his crucifixion, and yet it becomes the cornerstone, it becomes the capstone. It becomes that keystone that binds the whole building together and gives it security and stability and strength. A reference, I think, to his resurrection and his exaltation and clearly refers to himself in this matter. Now, let's take uh, each of those in turn. First of all, he will give the vineyard to others. Quite simply, the uh, message of salvation will now uh, go to the Gentiles. And that's an extraordinary statement that you can imagine how offensive that would be to Orthodox Jews. That what was precious to them, what was ultimately theirs, the privileges of God, and the salvation of God, this would now go to the Gentiles. I'm told that there was a time when the Orthodox Jewish man would pray every day, giving thanks to God, first of all, that he wasn't a woman, and secondly, that he wasn't a Gentile. But this uh, truth of the gospel for uh, the Gentile world uh, is a, a theme that does run throughout the Old Testament, of course, finds its fulfilment and its completion in the New Testament. And there's a lovely little uh, pointer to this in part of the Christmas story. We've been looking this week in our devotionals at those two lovely uh, older people, uh, Simeon and Anna. And that marvellous uh, passage when um, Simeon takes the baby Jesus in his arms. This lovely old man, Simeon, who takes God, who gathers God himself in, in baby Jesus in his arms. It's an absolutely mind-blowing moment. And these lovely words from Simeon include this. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. A light for the Gentiles and this lovely pointer in the words of Simeon. And we should rejoice in this. And we should rejoice that the gospel comes even to us. God's love is so precious. God's love is for all. And we are the objects of that love in Jesus Christ. But how offensive that must have been uh, to the Jews and how difficult for them to accept that. There's a lovely uh, verse, which I've always thought an extraordinary verse in the book of Acts. Well, we have the story of the apostle Peter, who has a vision as a result of which he visits a Gentile house, the house of Cornelius, who is a Roman centurion in the Roman army. And he's um, called to task by his fellow believers in Jerusalem uh, about this uh, breaking of the ceremonial law by visiting a Gentile house. And he gives his defence and he persuades them. And the passage ends with this quite extraordinary verse. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Even the Gentiles repentance unto life. 
Did you see how difficult it was to accept that the Gentiles were, were equal and that the message of salvation and the love of God in Christ uh, should be given to them? And I see profound uh, equality here in the gospel. We live in a world where we wrestle with inequality and injustice and unfairness and different treatment. But there's something profound here in the equality with which we should regard one another, all of whom uh, are objects of, of God's love and to whom he offers uh, the gospel. And not just a profound equality, but a profound hope that we can be instruments in God's hands as we go out uh, to share this truth, this grace, this love uh, with all the world. So that's the first point that Jesus makes at the end of, of, of his of his parable. And here the second one where he refers to himself as the capstone or the cornerstone. And so well known from Psalm 118, it's quoted a number of times in the New Testament. And this sense that the stone that the builders had originally rejected and, and put to one side, uh, and more than that, had, had, had abandoned, um, that this stone itself becomes the very stone that binds everything together. And um, we see here, as I've indicated, something of the uh, indication of the crucifixion and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus. A transformation that comes about through the cross and through the crucifixion. Paul makes so many references to this, but I can't think of any better reference them in that marvellous letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2 and if you listen to these words you'll see how there's this transformation takes place as the salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ the peace that follows from that and the reconciliation that follows from that is offered to the Gentiles so Ephesians 2 and verse 11 therefore remember that formerly <coughs> you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision that is done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have now been brought near, through the blood of Christ. As we draw to, towards the end, I want to make three brief points of application and arising from this parable of the tenants. The first is how terrible it is to reject the gospel, to reject the love of God um, offered to us in Jesus Christ. There is throughout scripture a choice offered to all of us, an invitation extended to all of us to decide uh, for God and for his Christ, or to turn away and choose another, or to go some separate, some separate route. We see it um, throughout scripture, as I say, this sense of a destiny. And it's um, uh, up to us, the choice we make, how we receive and how we decide upon the invitation that God gives to us. There's another parable that comes in the last week of Jesus' life. We find it at the end of Matthew's Gospel, the parable of the sheep 
and the goats. It's a parable of judgment when God will come to judge between the sheep and the goats, between heaven and hell. And so how terrible for us then to have heard the gospel and to have known the gospel and to reject the gospel. It's one of the clear messages of this parable. But secondly, let's rejoice and let's be glad that the gospel is indeed for all of us. God wants none to perish. And God so loves the world that he gave his one and only son. To whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. There is so much here for us to rejoice over and to be glad. And it gives us a motive, it gives us a, a driver to go out and tell others and share with others something that's so sweet and precious and special and such a treasure to us, which is the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, this encounter, which I mentioned early on in the opening words of, of, of this sermon, the encounter that we have with Jesus. We encounter him um, in the spirit. We encounter him in the word. We encounter him in the church. And he is the cornerstone, the capstone that binds all together. And we are invited to confess him as Lord and Saviour and friend. There's a lovely old hymn, some of you will know it quite well, um, which makes this so very clear, as do indeed some uh, modern hymns and songs. But one which I've known for so much of my life, Christ is made the sure foundation Christ, the head and cornerstone, chosen of the Lord and precious, binding all the church in one, holy Zion's help forever and her confidence alone. And I end with this. Jesus was popular. The common people heard him gladly and he still is someone to whom we can be profoundly attracted and drawn, we can find him persuasive and compelling in every way. And I wonder if someone isn't perhaps starting this year looking still, searching, wondering, doubting. I would say, look no further, look no further than Jesus Christ, who died for us, who died to set us free, who died to give our lives meaning and purpose and direction, and value, and reward, and satisfaction. Look no further. I find him so persuasive and convincing. His integrity. He went around doing good, a perfect, sinless man. He healed the sick. He comforted the sad. He raised the dead. And such authority, the claims he makes, claims to be the Son of God, claims in this parable clearly to be the Son of God, addresses God as his Father. No other religious leader ever addressed God as his Heavenly Father, but Jesus did, and he forgave sins. Where did he get the authority to forgive sins? Because he is the Son of God, and he was worshipped. And I find this integrity and these uh, claims and, and this authority that lies behind them, so persuasive still, to make Jesus quite uniquely 
special and precious. So as we leave behind such a difficult year as 2020 and look to 2021, let us, each one of us, put our hand into the hand of Jesus and to follow him. Let us pray. Father, help us to lay this truth in our hearts again, that he who was rejected and crucified, you raised to life and have exalted to the highest place of heaven. And he is the one that we can encounter and know for ourselves, trust for ourselves. We can find that he is our saviour and our Lord and our friend. And we can follow him out into the world to do his work, to be a witness to him and to see his kingdom established and grow. We ask in his name. Amen.